Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we'll be exploring one of the rare Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer screwball comedies, Libel Lady, from 1936. It stars Jean Harlow, Myrna Loy, William Powell, Spencer Tracy, Walter Connolly, and Charlie Grapewin, and it was directed by Jack Conway. Libel Lady is, as you can tell by the film's title, about love and libel. Heiress Connie Allenbury sues the New York Evening Star for libel and $5 million in damages after they accuse her of breaking up a marriage. The paper's editor, Warren Haggerty, is desperate for her to drop the suit, so he tracks down former employee and libel specialist Bill Chandler to help. Bill proposes a foolproof plan. He'll marry someone then pursue Connie and have his in-name-only wife find them in a compromising situation, which will force her to drop the suit. Warren enlists his long-suffering fiancée, Gladys, to agree to marry Bill, only if Warren promises to marry her later. Bill arranges to meet Connie and her father, J.B. Allenbury, aboard a transatlantic liner, but at first, Connie doesn't take the bait. After schmoozing J.B. about Fish, his pet hobby, Bill finagles an invitation to the Allenbury Cottage for a fishing trip. Like the fish, Connie gets hooked. Bill and Connie continue to see each other secretly. With Warren's attention solely on his newspaper, Gladys begins to fall for Bill too. A few weeks later, Mr. Allenbury hears gossip that Bill may have a wife. He warns Connie, who proposes to Bill instead. When Gladys and Warren go to their hotel, they discover that Bill has confessed everything to Connie and that the pair were secretly married. Bill reveals that Gladys had a Yucatan divorce from her first husband, which wasn't valid, and thus her marriage to him was a fake. Feeling betrayed, Gladys insists that she got a second divorce in Reno, and that she's really married to Bill. Connie tells Gladys that she only fell for Bill because he showed her the attention and kindness that Warren didn't. Meanwhile, Bill and Warren get into a physical fight. Gladys rushes to Warren and they make up, and the couples live happily ever after. Libel Lady began as a short story by Wallace Sullivan, who is best known as the writer behind Robert Ripley's Believe It or Not series. Sullivan's story was brought to MGM's attention in early 1936 by producer David Lewis, by his friend and agent Dick Palmer. Studio head Louis B. Mayer was impressed and saw its potential for the studio to capitalize on the popular new wacky comedy style. MGM bought the film rights from Sullivan and assigned the adaptation work to veteran screenwriters Maureen Dallas Watkins, Howard Emmett Rogers, and George Oppenheimer. According to production code records, upon being presented with a first draft script, PCA head Joseph Breen primarily objected to the representation of adultery. Ongoing negotiations between MGM and the PCA continued over a two-month period, and the screenwriters agreed to omit references to Gladys being Warren's mistress and a scene in which Bill spanks Connie. 
As the screenwriting trio continued to work on their adaptation, producer Lawrence Weingarten set the wheels in motion for casting. To date, MGM's most successful screen team was Myrna Loy and William Powell, who, by early 1936, had made four films together. Manhattan Melodrama, The Thin Man, Evelyn Prentice, and the recently released The Great Ziegfeld. According to Weingarten, he and L.B. Mayer believed that Libeled Lady would be the perfect vehicle for another Loy-Powell collaboration. However, when he sent the script to Loy, he claimed she, quote-unquote, disappeared and went to Europe. Powell, on the other hand, was eager to make the film. It was the final movie of his existing studio contract, and he was, by then, ready to renegotiate for a higher salary, after taking a substantial cut when he signed with them back in 1933. For Warren, MGM set their sights on Spencer Tracy. According to his biographer, James Curtis, although Tracy had ample experience working in comedy from his days in stock theater, the movie going public was less familiar with him in that genre. Tracy and MGM both believed that playing against type and working alongside Powell and Loy, both of whom had made names for themselves in comedy, would enhance his own star status. So although he had his sights set on an RKO Lono deal for the John Ford drama The Plow and the Stars, he agreed to stay at his home studio. Finally, for Gladys, MGM looked no further than the resident brassy dame Jean Harlow, who was riding high on a string of box office smashes such as Reckless, China Seas, and Wife vs. Secretary. According to Harlow's biographer David Sten, Louis B. Mayer was so pleased with the impressive $1.8 million box office gross of her film Susie, released that July, that for Libel Lady, he gave her a $5,000 bonus and top billing. Libel Lady went into production on July 13th, with some location shots filmed in Sonora, California in August. While Conway, Powell, Loy, Connolly, and the crew went on location, Jean Harlow traveled to Catalina Island to visit her mother, Jean Bellow, and Heine Brand. While on vacation, Harlow was stricken with a second-degree sunburn so severe that she ended up in the hospital. According to her friend Barbara Brown, she was in agony. Her face was so red. In mid-August, it was reported that MGM halted production for a week as Harlow recovered at home. In spite of her illness, the mood on set was generally jovial. It's speculated that Loy and Tracy had an affair during the production of their first film, Whipsaw, and that their feelings for each other still lingered during Libel Lady. However, as Loy recalls, Whipsaw was the beginning of Tracy's torch carrying. She said, I was running and Spence was running after me. I liked him, but not enough. Libel Lady was the first film that Loy made with Tracy after she married her first husband, Arthur Hornblow Jr. She remembers, he moped around, pretended to pout, playing the wrong suitor. He set up a hate hornblow table in the commissary, announcing that only men I had spurned could sit there. So all of these men joined him who were supposed to have crushes on me, which they didn't have at all. It was just a gag, but Spence made his point. In spite of some lingering feelings between Loy and Tracy, the foursome got along great on set. It's clear by their screen chemistry and camaraderie that they all respected each other's unique talents. Of his experience working with Loy, William Powell explained, Even my best friends never failed to tell me that the smartest thing I ever did was to marry Myrna Loy on the screen, and it was the pleasantest, might I add. When we did a scene together, we forgot about technique, camera angles, and microphones. We weren't acting. We were just two people in perfect harmony. Similarly, 
Myrna Loy described Spencer Tracy as a perfectionist, aware of everything he did with a part. The seemingly relaxed, easygoing performances were carefully thought out, structured creations. That's one of the reasons he was so good. However, according to James Curtis, the actor's repartee was stifled by director Jack Conway, who was prone to acting out scenes exactly how he wanted them to be played. Still, as critic Vincent Canby wrote in his 1981 New York Times profile of the screwball genre, Conway was a, quote, fellow whose competency has somehow escaped the kind of adulation heaped upon other studio directors of no more talent. By 1936, Conway had an impressive comedy resume, with such tour-de-force films as the silent comedy Bringing Up Father from 1928, the pre-cold gold digger comedy Red-Headed Woman from 1932, also starring Jean Harlow, and the underrated screwball-esque gangster parody The Gay Bride from 1934. Conway understood Screwball's lightning pace and energetic fervor. If he was heavy-handed in his direction, the foursome's performances don't show it. Together, he and the actors created the perfect balance between Screwball's frenetic, almost uncontrollable energy with lush romance. Libeled Lady is not of the rough-and-tumble, rapid-fire Screwball variety like Nothing Sacred or His Girl Friday. In keeping with MGM's polished house style, the film is less zany than other entries in the genre, although it has its moments. For example, Powell's slapstick performance in the fishing scene. Jack Conway understood how to balance those scenes of pure wackiness with the sleek romantic aesthetic expected from an MGM film, especially in scenes with Powell and Loy. As one might expect from an MGM movie, Libeled Lady is screwball light, but done oh so well. Production wrapped on September 1st, and shortly thereafter, Loy and Powell embarked for San Francisco to begin production on After the Thin Man with Jean Harlow in tow. Here's Loy recalling her and Powell's screen iconicity and the trio's arrival in the city. I went with him to San Francisco to do the second Thin Man, and Jean Harlow was with us. It was the only time that Jean had managed to get away. And, uh, uh, when we arrived at the hotel, they had a suite. They reserved the suite for Bill and me. <laughs> and so, so Harlow and I took it. Jean and I took it. And we put him, he was, it was a, there was a convention there, you see. And so the hotel was full. And they put, we put him down in some little hall bedroom. So we had a wonderful time. While the actors were away, Libeled Lady opened on October 9th to overwhelmingly positive critical reviews. The Hollywood Reporter wrote that it contained, quote, enough witty dialogue to stock five ordinary comedies, while movie classic magazine described it as perfection, a continuous laugh fest with sparkling dialogue. That same reviewer singled out Jean Harlow as being on top of the movie ladder as a comedian without equal. MGM reported smashing box office numbers to match. Sales totaled $2.7 million, and the studio earned a $1.189 million profit. The Academy also took note. Libeled Lady was nominated for Best Picture at the 1937 Oscars, but lost out to the other Loy Powell collaboration from 1936, The Great Ziegfeld. 
Like other screwball comedies, Libeled Lady is transgressive in the way that it brings romantic affairs of the private sphere to the public square. With the 1930s economy in shambles and societal conceptions of gender roles and marriage in flux, screwball comedy often portrays an unstable world run by ineffective or corrupt authority figures. In some films, law and order is flaunted with aplomb, as is the case in The Awful Truth, when Jerry and Lucy break their car radio knob and get a police escort on motorcycles back to her aunt Patsy's cottage. Turn down that radio! I can't! What do you mean you can't? Oh, you lost the control! Well, you can't let it run that way! Let me take a look at it! Wait a minute, I'll get out of your way! See what you can do! Where's your ownership car? In the upper right-hand drawer of my bureau. Are you sure this is your car? Well, of course I'm sure it's my car. Well, if it's your car, you ought to know your own license number. What number is it? Well, I don't know. They change it on me every year. Don't look now, but what's the number on your motorcycle? Uh, Say, have you folks been drinking? No, I haven't, but... Uh... Let me see you walk this line. Come on. In others, like Clybold Lady, the law is flimsy and easily manipulated by private citizens. The law seems to exist simply to be exploited, as is the case with Connie's libel suit, or subverted, namely, Warren using the legal mechanisms of matrimony to undercut Connie's lawsuit. Historian Gregoire Halbu writes that in Screwball, quote, nonconformity becomes the only way of reestablishing order in an unacceptably conservative system. In other words, through chaos comes a bit of stability. Comedy scholar Katrina Glitra notes that screwball comedy uses an escape to the country trope as a way to interrogate the breakdown of the public sphere's integrity. In The Awful Truth, for example, Jerry and Lucy resolve their divorce at her Aunt Patsy's cottage in the woods. In Mr. and Mrs. Smith by Alfred Hitchcock, the titular couple achieve a, at least a sexual reconciliation, at a ski lodge in Lake Placid. In Libeled Lady, that transformation occurs at the Allenbury's lakeside cottage. To the rest of the world, Connie is a spoiled, homeworking heiress. Only when Bill and Connie get away from the prying eyes of the press and the New York social circle does he actually get to know the true woman behind the headlines. After an evening swim, the pair take refuge in a lake house. Conway frames the scene lovingly, with the soft glow of the moonlight twinkling in a reflection on the water. It's here, in this secluded wooded oasis, that Connie and Bill have a heart-to-heart. -heart. Well, say, you're pretty palatial up here. Like it? <laughs> I think it's grand. I always come down for a plunge. I've even stayed here all night. No what? Thanks. Here, alone? Yes, there's nothing to be afraid of. What? Pretty neat. <laughs> I like music with my moonlight. You know... You're a funny kid. 
That's what you seem like up here, a kid. Very different from the girl I met on the boat. I feel different. This place, it's all tied up with my childhood. Trees, the air, the water, even the frogs. I'm mad about frogs. I love it. We've always had heavenly times up here. Every minute completely filled, like today. Yes. It's been perfect. Has, hasn't it? Almost too perfect. And it's costing me a fortune, young man. What? I'm paying dearly for this day of fun. Meaning? It's my own fault for daring to bet with Dad on men. I'm a rotten judge of men. Oh, well, aren't we all? Anyway, I bet him a new plane to tip your hand in the first 24 hours. I was rather sporting your father to back a dark horse. Oh, Dad's a grand judge of character. He placed you right away. Impetuous, friendly, enthusiastic, guileless. Guileless? Not so sure about that. What's your analysis? Well, I said it first on the boat. Just another fortune hunter chasing $50 million on the hoof. Then? And then you told me off for being fragile. But I still said, He's got something up his sleeve he wants to sell. An oil well, an invention, or an emerald mine. The last young man we took on had an emerald mine. And will you believe it? I even bet you didn't fish. You lost. Ah, me. Live and learn, Connie, my angel, I said. Next time, don't bet on men. What are you thinking? Well, oh, I, I haven't hurt you, have I? I didn't mean to hurt you. It was just my way of saying, I hope we can be friends. That's about the nicest thing that's been said to me this lifetime. Friends? Yes, please. And you do forgive me. Don't apologize for suspecting people, Connie. Keep right on. Bring every coin you meet. There are lots of wooden nickels in circulation. For the 1930s audiences who are familiar with the Myrna Loy-William Powell screen dynamic, Libeled Lady lacks the lightning-fast banter of The Thin Man or the heartache of both Manhattan Melodrama and Evelyn Prentice. Instead, Loy and Powell give us sincerity. Even set against Bill's deceit, there's a sweetness to their screen chemistry that's grounded in the actor's ease with one another. When Powell said it didn't feel like acting with Loy, it shows in their performances. Watching them together on screen is like eavesdropping on two old friends. Their underlying tenderness, even in scenes of strife or animosity, envelop you like a warm hug. With Bill, Connie lets her guard down. She's playful, flirtatious, and almost childlike in her frankness. She's also impressed by Bill's candor, and remarks that he was the first and only person in a long time that she's wanted to actually talk to. The escape to the country gives Bill a chance to see the quote-unquote real Connie. She's more than just a spoiled homewrecking heiress. She has depth, and Bill does too. In some films, William Powell has a tendency to be a bit too tongue-in-cheek and cynical, 
which makes sense, given his established debonair, man-of-the-world star persona. But opposite Loy, Powell can also be soft, affectionate, and sentimental. In this scene, Bill's regret about deceiving Connie bubbles up to the surface. He realizes that he's been a heel, but instead of feeling sorry for himself, Powell plays him earnestly enough for us to know that his concerns are about Connie. Like her, Bill has heart. The breakdown of the public sphere also extends to libeled ladies' representation of marriage. Screwball comedy is, in essence, a genre about the status of marriage in the 1930s and early 1940s. By the time the United States had been plagued by the Depression, marriage had long been a subject of cultural debate. The availability of contraception, combined with women's increasing presence in the workforce and their subsequent financial independence in the early 20th century, contributed to a belief that marriage was more than just about procreation. Companionate marriage, which is predicated on compatibility and sexual fulfillment, put women's emotional and physical needs on equal footing with their male partners. On average, women in the 1930s were staying single longer than their Victorian grandmothers, and their sexual liberation was an extension of the unprecedented modernity of the Jazz Age. This radically modern conception of marriage permeated all aspects of popular culture and found its ideal home in screwball comedy, a genre born of the era's economic malaise and the entrenched conservatism of the production code. Screwball marriages are complicated at best. Libel Lady leans into the marriage trope by playing with its legal parameters. Katrina Glitz reminds us that the only legal marriage that we see is that of Bill and Gladys. But of course, it's fake. In the wedding scene at the magistrate's office, comedic tension builds when Gladys, who's still obviously hurt and pining for Warren, barely even acknowledges her new husband. And I pronounce you man and wife. Well, aren't you going to kiss a bride? Uh, oh yes, sure. <clears throat> May I? Uh, why not? Everybody else seems to be doing it. <laughs> well? Aren't you going to kiss me? Yeah, sure, sure. An old friend of the family. Yes. <laughs> Darling. It's a very old friend. Oh, uh, uh, well, I hope you'll be very happy. And uh, don't forget to invite me to your silver anniversary. It'll have to be within the next six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> goodbye and good luck. Goodbye. Goodbye. Good luck to you. Goodbye. Well, take his arm. I'm taking your arm. The quiver in Harlow's voice as she says darling and her passionate kiss with Warren reminds us that her marriage to Bill is simply out of practical necessity, not love. Although Bill does pay attention to her in ways that she never experienced with Warren, simply by being present and engaged, his actions are not out of love, but gentlemanly respect. Jean Harlow may have perfected the uninhibited gold digger and vamp character types in films like Red-Headed Woman and Red Dust, but privately, she was the opposite of those characters. In real life, Jean Harlow is sweet, loyal, and dependable, sometimes to a fault. 
as was the case with her lifelong devotion to her overbearing mother, Mama Jean, and her loafing stepfather, Marino Bello. Harlow's stalwart reliability comes through in Gladys, ironically too, at her own expense. Of the four characters, Gladys ends up with the short end of the stick. She's been taken for a ride by Warren, who shudders at the thought of marriage, unless it's to his newspaper. The affection she develops for Bill manifests simply because she craves the love and tenderness that's been denied her in her own relationship. Although Gladys is sassy and can hold her own, Harlow's inherent likability makes her an almost comically tragic figure. The aforementioned quiver in her voice is comedic, but it's also devastating. All Gladys wants is to be loved. Over time, however, the in-name-only couple settle into a dull domestic routine. One morning during breakfast, Bill reads the paper while Gladys sits in a huff. Will you have some more coffee, yeah, Bill? Uh, no. Alice certainly looks married. <laughs> a little too married to suit me. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. Here, have a piece. Try the funnies. No, I want to talk. You do? Mm-hmm. Gladys's job that they look a little too married is predicated on the stereotypical belief that in due time, all couples fall into a bit of a rut. Unlike a companionate partnership that is based on love, laughter, and spontaneity, marriage becomes antiseptic, dull, and what Glitcher calls a means of entrapment. Censor Joseph Breen was a devout Catholic, and during his tenure as PCA head, he pushed a pro-marriage ideology believing that the sanctity of marriage and family life were the foundations of a healthy and thriving society. But in spite of the PCA's position, Libeled Lady breaks down the integrity of marriage as a legal institution. Stripped of any passion and romance, marriage is simply a contractual agreement. The flimsy status of Bill and Gladys's union is repeatedly called into question throughout the film, but no more so than in the concluding scene. After Bill and Connie admit that they're in love, things get a little complicated when we discover that Gladys was once previously married and sought a quick Yucatan divorce that wasn't necessarily legal. As Mrs. William Chandler, I demand oh. that I... Uh, there must be some mistake. Uh, you see, th this is Mrs. Chandler. What? What? Yes, it has been for a whole hour. Yes, we were just married. Have you gone crazy? If you think you can excuse this by pulling a marriage tag, you've just oh, got... We are married, uh, really. Oh, yes. Uh, 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 I uh, always carry our marriage certificate right with me. Uh, uh, Mrs. Elmer, will you... They're married, all right. Oh, but that's awesome. You mean it's bigamy? What a story. Connie Allenbury marries bigamist. Oh, if you print that in your paper, you'll have another libel suit on your hands. I'm not a bigamist. You married me, didn't you? Well, that one doesn't count. What are you talking about? About uh, a certain Mr. Joseph Simpson, your lawfully wedded husband. What are you trying to hand me? I've been divorced from Simpson for... Oh, well, you, uh, you see, you got your divorce in Yucatan by mail. Well, uh, three years ago, all uh, Yucatan divorces were declared illegal. I found that out yesterday in the Hall of Records. Also consulted my attorney. <laughs> then you and Gladys were never really married? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's all right. I made an honest man of him. Oh, dear, uh, don't forget the letter. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yes, yes. Uh, 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 this is from Mrs. Chandler for you, uh, Warren. You know, she was so touched by your uh, pity for your 500 starving employees, you dropped the suit. 
Oh. But I... Miss Allen, Mrs. Chandler, how can I ever... I just can't think. Well, <laughs> Connie Allenbury marries author. What a story. What a scoop. Oh, Mr. Haggerty, you've forgotten something. Uh, oh, yes, my hat. Excuse me. Your hat and Mrs. Simpson. Mrs. Simpson? Oh, Gladdy, of course. <laughs> that Mrs. Simpson gets me, Gladdy. <laughs> now I've got to run along to the office, hon. You, you phone me there in the morning, huh? <laughs> you sweet little... Just a minute. You want a real scoop? Well, I'll give you one. I found out my Yucatan divorce was no good. So I got a second divorce from Joe Simpson and Reno. What? What? Well, then, well, then we're not... I don't believe it. Then try the Reno Hall of Records. But, but if... if That's you're... quite right. Now, where do we all stand? I'll... Let's, uh... Let's all sit down and talk things over quietly. You and I'll have plenty of time to talk this over on our world cruise. I, I'm quite certain Miss Allenberry won't mind turning her ticket over to me now. Ticket? World cruise? What are you talking about? Uh, you're getting all excited now. Come along with me. What you. about I, it's, this? It's nothing, Bill. It's nothing at what? all. Yes, what about this? <laughs> Honey, I, I can explain that thing. I had to use it as a little gag. Oh, so it's just one of your little gags to get me here. Well, I'm here, all right. And before I'm through, you'll all be sorry you ever saw me. You were all terribly smart, weren't you? You were all building up to a nice, happy ending. Haggerty wins his case. Chandler wins his girl. Well, well, where do I stand? I'll tell you where. Right behind the eight ball. You thought it was a lot of fun, didn't you? Making me fall for you. Well, I did fall. But I'm picking myself up, William Chandler. You can't fool me anymore with your hoof, 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 or your insomnia, your publisher. You're a pretty poor sample of a husband. But nobody else is going to get you, not if it kills both of us. Oh, and you're ten times worse than he is. At least he had some excuse for kicking me around. He was in love with another woman. But you double-crossed me for the sake of a newspaper. Well, marry the paper and be the proud father of a lot of headlines. That's all you're good for anyway. Gladys admits that she got a second divorce in Reno, which makes Bill an unintentional bigamist. The film concludes with a romantic resolution. Connie eventually convinces Gladys that Bill's crumbs of attention were not love, and Gladys eventually returns to Warren. But it doesn't necessarily resolve the tangled web of matrimony. By the end, Bill and Gladys are still legally married. Muddying the waters with multiple overlapping unions and divorces enables libeled lady to cleverly push back on the PCA's marriage mandate by presenting a so-called stable social institution under duress. Love, it seems, is the ultimate triumph. Marriage is merely a convoluted complication. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Or you can follow me personally, I'm at The Screwball Girl, without the eye in girl. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye! <laughs>